0: Chapter eighteen-Of the Million Dollar Suitcase by Alice McGowan This LibriVox recording is in the public domain The Million Dollar Suitcase Chapter eighteen-The Torn Page My coming had thrown dinner late. We were barely through with the meal and back once more in the living room, when the latch of the French window rattled, the window itself was pushed open, and a high, imperious voice proclaimed: the Princess of China, calling on Mr. Worth Gilbert." There stood Ina Vanderman in the gorgeously embroidered robes of a high-caste Chinese lady, her fair hair covered by a sleek black wig that struck out something odd, almost ominous in the colouring of her skin, the very planes of her features. Outside, along the porch, sounded the patter of many feet. Skeet, wriggled through the narrow frame under her tall sister's arm, came scooting into the room to turn and gaze back at her. "'Doesn't she look the vamp?' "'Skeet!' Ina had sailed in by this time, and Ernestine followed more soberly. "'You've been told not to say that!' "'I think,' the other twin backed her up virtuously, "'with poor mother sick and all you might respect her wishes. You know what she said about calling Ina a vamp.' and Skeet drawled innocently, "'That had hit too near the truth to be funny, wasn't that it?' Through the open window had followed a half-dozen more of the Blossom Festival crowd, Barbara and Bronson Vandeman among them. Ina paid no attention to anyone Standing there, her height increased by the long straight lines of the costume, her bisque-doll features given a strange, pallid dignity by the raw magnificence, of its crusted purple and crimson and green and gold embroidery and dead black wig. "'Isn't it an exquisite thing, Worth?' displaying herself before him. Braunce has a complete Mandarin costume. We lead the Grand March as the Emperor and Empress of Mongolia. Don't you think it's a good idea?' First rate Worth spoke in his usual, unexcited fashion and it was difficult to say whether he meant the oriental idea or the appearance of the girl who stood before him. She came close and offered the cuff of one of her sleeves to show him the embroidery, lifting a delicate chin to display the jade buttons at the neck. Barbara over on the other side of the room refused to meet my eye. Mrs. Bowman, a big fur-piece pulled up around her throat, shivered. I met half a dozen Santa Isabel people whose names I've forgotten. I could see that Bronson Vaneman socially took the lead here, that everybody looked to him. The room was a babel of talk when a few minutes later the doorbell rang in orthodox fashion, and Chung ushered Cummings in upon the general confusion. Some of the bunch knew and spoke to him, others didn't and had to be presented. It took the first of his time and attention. He only got a chance for one swipe at me, a low-toned, sarcastic, Made a mistake to duck me, Boyne." I didn't think it worth while to answer that. Presently I saw him standing with Barbara. He was evidently effecting a switch of his theatre engagement to the ball, for I heard Skeet's, "'Mr. Cummings wants a ticket. He'll need two. Ten dollars, Mr. Cummings, five apiece.' "'No, no, Skeet.' Barbara laughed embarrassedly. Mr. Cummings was just joking. He'll not be here Saturday night. I'll come back for it." Hand in pocket. It's a masquerade, Barbara hesitated. Bring my costume with me from San Francisco. I'm not sure, again Barbara hesitated, skeet-cutting on her. Why, Barbara Wallace, it's what you came to Santa Isabel for, the Bloss, Fess, Ball, and to think of your getting a perfectly good man right at the last minute this way! and not having to tag on to Bronze and Ina or something like that. I think you're the lucky girl!' And she clutched Cummings' offered payment to stow it with other funds she had collected. At last they got themselves out of the room and left us alone with Cummings. He had carried through his little deal with Barbara, as though it meant considerable to him, but I knew that his errand with Worth was serious and put in quickly. "'I intended to write or phone you tomorrow, Cummings.' "'Well,' The lawyer worked his mouth a bit under that bristly moustache and looked at Worth. "'It might have saved you some embarrassment if you had been warned of my errand here tonight. Earlier, that is. I suppose Captain Gilbert has told you that I phoned him, when I failed to connect with you, that I was coming here, and what I was coming for?' "'I didn't tell, Jerry.' Worth picked up a cigarette. "'Could very well tell him what you were coming for. Don't know myself.' The words were blunt really, I think there was no intention to offend, only the simple statement of a fact, but I could see Cummings beginning to simmer as he inquired, "'Does that mean you didn't understand my words on the phone, or that you understood them and couldn't make out what I meant by them?' "'Little of both,' allowed Worth. Cummings stepped close to him and let him have it direct. "'I'm here tonight, Captain Gilbert, as executor of your father's estate. I have filed the will today." I might have done so earlier, but when I inventoried this place—you remember the day before the funeral—you were here at the time—I failed to locate a considerable portion of your father's estate." "'You failed to locate? All the estates here—this house, the downtown properties—what do you mean, failed to locate?' "'I wasn't alluding to realty,' said Cummings. "'It's my duty to locate and report to the court the present whereabouts of seventy-five thousand dollars' worth of stock in the Van Ness Avenue Savings Bank. Can you declare to me as executor where it is? And, if any other person than your father placed it in its present whereabouts, are you ready to declare to me how and when it came into that person's possession?" "'Quite a lot of words, Cummings. But it doesn't mean anything,' Worth said casually. "'You know where that bank stock is, and who put it there.' Officially, I do not know. Officially, I demand to be told. Unofficially, answer it for yourself. Worth turned his back on the lawyer to get a match from the mantel. Very well. My answer is that I intend to find out how and when that bank stock, which formed a part of your payment to the Van Ness Avenue Bank, disappeared from this house. I admit I was scared. Here was the first gun of the coming battle, and I was sure this enemy, who stood now looking through half-closed eyes at the lad's back, would have poisoned gas among his weapons. He had emphasized the when. He believed that the stories of Worth's night-visit to his father were true, that the implied denial by Barbara and myself in my office was false, that Worth had either received the stock from his father that Saturday night or taken it unlawfully. I was sure that it was the stock certificates which I had seen Worth take from the safe compartment of the sideboard in the small hours of Monday morning—a breach of legal form which it would be possible for a friendly executor to pass over. "'Cummings, Worth inherits everything under his father's will. What's the difference about a small irregularity in taking possession? He—' Never explain, Jerry.' Worth shut me up. "'Your friends don't need it, and your enemies won't believe it.' Cummings had stood where he was since the first of the interview. His face went strangely livid. There was more in this than a legal fight. Yes. Boyne's a fool to try to help your case with explanations, Gilbert. He choked out. I'll see that both of you get a chance to answer questions elsewhere, under oath. Good evening. He turned and left. He had the best of it all around. I endeavored for some time to get before Worth the dangers of his high-handed defiance of law, order, probate judges and the court's officers, in the person of Alan G. Cummings' attorney and his father's executor. He listened, yawned, and suggested that it must be nearly bedtime. I gave it up and we went, I at least, with a sense of danger ahead upon me, to our rooms. Along in the middle of the night I waked to the knowledge that a casement window was pounding somewhere in the house. For a while I lay and listened in that helpless, exaggerated resentment one feels at such a time. I drop off, get nearly to sleep, only to be jerked broad awake again by the thudding. Listening carefully, I decided that the bothersome window was in Worth's room, and finally I got up sense and spunk enough to roll out of bed, stick my feet into slippers, and sneak over with the intention of locking it. The room was dimly lighted from the street lamps, far away as they were. I made my way across it. Worth's deep, regular breathing was quite undisturbed. I had trouble with the catch, went and felt over the bureau and found his flashlight, fixed the window by its help, and returning it, remembering how near I came to knocking it off the bureau top, thought to put it in a drawer which stood half open. As I aimed it downward, its circle of illumination showed something projecting a corner from beneath the swirl of ties and a sheaf of collars. A book. A red, morocco-bound book. Mechanically, I nudged the stuff away with the torch itself. What lay there turned me cold. It was the 1920 diary. My fingers relaxed. The flashlight fell with a thump as I let out an exclamation of dismay. A sleepy voice inquired from the bed, you, Jerry. What are you up to in here?" For answer, I dragged out the book, went over to the bed and switched on the reading lamp there. Worth scowled in the glare and flung his arms up back of his head for a pillow to raise it a bit. Yeah, blinking amiably at the volume. Meant to tell you. Found it today when I was down in the repair-pit at the garage. It had been stuck in the drain-pipe there. And I suppose I said savagely, that if I hadn't come on to it now, you'd have burned this too. Don't get sore, Jerry," he said, I saved it. And he yawned. I had an uncontrollable impulse to have a look at that last entry, which would record the bitter final quarrel between this boy and his father. No difficulty about finding the spot. As I raised the book in my hands it fell open of itself at the place. I looked, and what I saw choked me, got crosswise in my throat for a moment so no words could come out. I stuck the book under his nose and held it there till I could whisper, "'Worth, did you do this?' The last written page was numbered forty-nine. On it was recorded the date, March 6th, the weather cloudy, clearing late in the afternoon, the fact that the sun had set red in a cloudless sky. And it ended abruptly in the middle of a phrase the leaf that carried page fifty had been torn out, not cut away carefully as were those leaves in the earlier book, but ripped loose, grabbed with clutching fingers that scarred and twisted the leaf below. He shoved my hand away and stared at me. For a moment I thought everything was over. Certainly I could not be a very appealing sight, standing there sweating with fear, my hair all stuck up on my head where I'd clawed it, shivering in my nightclothes more from miserable nervousness than from cold. But somehow those eyes of his softened. He gave me one of the looks that people who care for Worth will go far to get, and said quietly, "'You see what you're doing? I told you I didn't steal the book, so that clears me in your mind of being the murderer. Now you're after me about this torn-out page. If I'd torn it out and stolen it, you and I would know what it would mean.' but, boy," I began, when he suffered a change of heart, "'Get out of here! Take that damn book and leave!' He heaved himself over in the bed, hunching the covers about his ears, turning his back on me. As I crept away, I heard him finish in a sort of mutter, as though to himself, "'I'm sorry for you, Jerry Boyne.'" End of chapter 18